0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Subscribe today at southernfarmandgarden.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: It is time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am absolutely bubbling over with energy because I just spent almost a week out of New York City and deep in the country getting those microbial, uh, you know, endorphin boosters from the soil or whatever it is. Anyway, this is me, your host, Katie Kiefer. We have a great show today. Uh, we're talking about the future of farming in this country, something that most people don't really think about all that much. But, you know, remember back in the day of Farm Aid, no farmers, no food? Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. So, but before we get there, <clears throat> we have we are now here, and here is joy and sorrows. And really, this is—I mean, this is turning into not really joys and sorrows so much as just kind of stuff that catches my attention during the week, and then I put it down or I save the link. But um, the first one I wanted to talk about, um, partly because I got to do a radio show with Marion Nessel last weekend, um, uh, Michael Olson's show, The Food Chain, out in California, and uh, she and I were co-guests, which was a real thrill for me. I must say, I was. Deeply gratified. Um, and of course, Marion is wonderful as always. And she was being asked about her book, Soda Politics, which I interviewed her for about a year or so ago when it came out. Um, anyway, I wanted to, because of that, I was thinking about Marion and I was, I, I was caught, my eye was caught by this article in the Wall Street Journal, which reported that bottled water now rules over soda. Between safety concerns over tap water and the public health implications of drinking sugary drinks, Adam's Ale has prevailed. Don't you like that? Isn't that cute? Um, And that is a development that the American Beverage Association could not possibly have anticipated, not even, I mean, even a decade ago, probably even five years ago, they wouldn't have seen that to be uh, the prevailing trend. But there it is. And if you want to learn more about why... We are winning the war against soda. Read Marion's book, uh, Soda Politics. It's really excellent. And uh, the tagline in it is nah, "But w- but we are winning. And she's right. We are winning. So um, that was, there's a joy. Okay? There's a joy for you. Now, the second thing I wanted to talk about is something I have um, brought up on this show quite often over the years, like really over many years now, because this is my eighth year of broadcasting on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, and that is the end of the gypsum rule. Now, GYPSA, I talk about periodically, it's kind of a murky situation, um, but it's actually GYPSA stands for Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Act, um, which was... Uh, signed into law decades ago, but was kind of um, revamped and reformed, uh, and uh, a newer version of which uh, was approved by the Obama administration last year, with the idea of helping to level the playing field for smaller livestock farmers who are literally strangled by the iron grip of gigantic meatpacking corporations uh, who control the pricing for livestock. The rule, uh, which Obama approved, would have made it easier for livestock producers to sue the large meat processing companies that they contract with over their abusive practices, like beating them down on price for their animals. Um, Well, uh, Mr. Trump's USDA has put the rule on ice for a minimum of six months and may very well kill it once the you know, the fuss dies down. Um, And it's to be remembered that the people who hate this rule are the people who donate the most to the members of Congress. So the rule has been challenged by the likes of the national pork producers council, Uh, The uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the National Chicken Council, and other uh, large trade organizations that represent the interests of people like uh, Tyson Cargill et al. Um, So if you want to know why this rule is so important, uh, you might want to go back and take a listen to a recent show that I did with Christopher Leonard on the price-fixing lawsuits that have been waged against big chicken processors by a variety of different groups. Um, And that is why the rule is important. So, um, take a listen to that show if you haven't listened to it before, because um, Chris, of course, is a wonderful journalist who has um, is my guru uh, in a way because of his incredible book, The Meat Racket, uh, which blew open the practices of the poultry industry and um, the very abusive nature of those practices. Um, so, definitely take a listen to that or just read up on it. But it's, it has a big implication for the smaller livestock farmers who really are struggling um, to find outlets for their product that aren't just farmers markets. Okay. And lastly, a year ago uh, on March, uh, in March, I should say, 71 investment firms wrote to 10 major food companies warning them that they must take meaningful action to curb or eliminate the routine use of antibiotics in the food chain. And since then, most of them are, in fact, actively working to make that happen. And that includes uh, producers as well. uh, Tyson has made great efforts. Purdue has really gone way, way beyond anybody else in removing antibiotics from their food chain. But the companies in question are largely fast food companies or restaurant chains. Um, They include McDonald's, the Darden Restaurants, Brinker International, Domino's Pizza, J.D. Weatherspoon. Some of these are European. Mitchell's and Butler's, Restaurant Brand International, the Restaurant Group, Wendy's, and Yum exclamation point, which is the owner of KFC Taco Bell et al. What was interesting, what caught my eye about it, this is that all of these other chains, uh, you know, responded to the investment companies saying, yes, they are doing this. Yes, they understand the implications of not doing it. And yes, they can issue reports on the progress that they're making. But Yum! Exclamation point Did not respond to the request for information about their efforts, which leads one to believe that they really aren't making any. And it should be noted that Yum! Exclamation point Is expanding enormously in Asia where excess use of antibiotics is literally a national emergency. And it is one where finally the government is stepping in in China and trying to regulate the use of antibiotics because at this point we have reached the end of the road. It was in China that the first uh, antibiotic-resistant microbes to the final drug in our arsenal, colistin, uh, was discovered first, and that has been replicated uh, in other countries. But uh, certainly the Chinese literally use billions of pounds of antibiotics every year in their livestock industry, which is all um, completely modeled on the American. And you can learn more about that, my friends, when you purchase my book, which is available now on Amazon. It's called What's the Matter with Meat? And I have a big, long chapter about China. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, (laughs) I'm, I'm, you know, what is that? You know, when you blow on your knuckles and then rub your chest. I forget what that expression the expression is for that, but um, that's what I'm doing. So now we will take a short break and we will be right back with Lindsay lusher Shoot, I hope I said that correctly. Uh, she is the executive director and co-founder of the National Young Farmers Coalition. We're going to be talking about the future of food in the United States. So stay tuned and we'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Each issue features stories about food history, seasonal recipes, artisanal products, and the amazing people who bring it to your table. Packed with stunning photography, the content is fresh and educational. Southern Farm and Garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers, gardeners, wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today to southernfarmandgarden.com. Foodtank.com named Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com.
2: Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am
3: your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're going to be talking about the National Young Farmers Coalition with their executive director and co-founder, Lindsay Lesher-Schute. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Katie. You're welcome. Let me, I'm just going to read your, your bio, which I forgot to do. I normally do that before I bring you on, but you'll have to bear with me while I extol your virtues to my public. Um, right. With uh, Lindsay, you have a background in organizing. Of course, I can't see this. In organizing in state policy, Lindsay co-founded uh, National Young Farmers Coalition as a platform for young progressive farmers to have meaningful influence on the structural Obstacles in the way of their success. Lindsay is a respected speaker and an expert on the structural issues facing family farms in 2014. She was named a champion of change by the White House. She and her husband own and operate Hardy Roots Farm in the Hudson Valley. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Okay, nice CV there. You didn't make me feel too, too bad about myself. Normally when I... (laughs) After I introduce somebody, I then feel like, but you know, you 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 have a manageable CV. I'm totally impressed with you um, because I suspect you're way way younger than I am and already running a farm and a national coalition for young farmers. So tell us about the National Young Farmers Coalition. Like, what is this? What are you doing? And why did you start it?
4: Sure. The National Young Farmers Coalition was founded by myself and a couple of farmers in the Hudson Valley in in 2010 because of the structural issues that we were facing in building our farms mm-hmm. essentially from scratch all all first generation farmers and we realized that there was no local or regional or even national organization that was really representing the needs of young and beginning farmers trying to break into agriculture and so we got together with farmers young farmers across the country and launched the coalition then, and now we have, have grown the organization um, to 34 chapters in 29 states and, and thousands of members that work on policy change, primarily in D.C., although we have some state initiatives that are um, beginning right now. Uh, we also offer business services, technical training, and support uh, to our members, and then we offer business networks and community through our, our chapters.
3: Sounds great. I mean, incredible. And especially the fact that you grew it so quickly says something about the need for that. Um, so tell us what are the biggest challenges faced by would be young farmers? I mean, I would guess that it's acquisition of land, but I'm sure there's much more to it than that.
4: That's right. Land remains the number one challenge for farmers. Nationwide, um, for different reasons, depending on on the region. But the primary primary issue for young people getting into agriculture really is the the cost per acre and how the economics just don't necessarily line up. You know, if you're paying ten thousand dollars an acre for, for land, it's pretty hard to pay back that that mortgage on a farmer's income. So that's mm. that's the challenge uh, we're facing, and also some of some of the uh, parcels some of the farms at this point in time are so large uh, they've they've um, been consolidated over decades and so there's also some community and interpersonal stuff that comes into play that's sort of layered on top of just the basic price and economic issues that these are these are family farms many of them and so to have a new owner is it can be very complicated to make that transition between between generations and you know sometimes you know, subdividing a farm or whatever Mm -hmm. it it might require to, you know, get maybe that first 100 acres or maybe that first 10 acres, um, whatever the case might be for a young person to get going.
3: What is the average size of a young farmer's, you know, your, let's talk about your constituency, what, um, how much land are they looking to acquire to start their farming operations? Is Is it something like 10 acres or is it 100 acres or is it somewhere in between?
4: Right. It it absolutely depends on the region. We have urban farmers that are, are part of our network that may be doing a quarter acre. Um, and then we have farmers who are working in the western landscape doing ranching, and they're... On the scale of thousands of acres, uh-huh. I would say on average, it's, I would say most of our members are probably like in the fifty-acre sort of a range. Yeah. Um, but it, it really very much depends on on the context in which they're they're farming. Our my farm is seventy acres. We. Mm-hmm. Every season we farm about twenty five acres of, of vegetables and we have some livestock as well
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what what ways are the, what are the ways that uh, your organization supports young farmers you said you mentioned business um, uh you know business education what what are, what are these kids what are people what's the average age of the person who's trying to get into farming and what's and if they're not sort of generational what's their background in general have you found
4: right so the average age of people getting into farming, that's a, that's a good question. But I will say that our sort of core constituency is between the age of 25 and 35. Mm-hmm. Um, young people in their 20s, sometimes they've done other careers. They've, they've uh, graduated from high school or college and have tried a few other things and sort of fallen into farming one way or another by uh, getting a job at a farm or meeting some farmers and feeling inspired or, you know, reading about uh, sort of the good food movement. And feel like they want to be a part of that. They want to be an active member of their their community in that way. And so they get into their into farm careers in their twenties. And because so many of them are coming from non-farming backgrounds, the majority of the farmers in our coalition are first-generation farmers. They are not inheriting knowledge, skills, even right. commu- you know rural community, and and certainly land. And so they're really starting from scratch. Multi-generational farmers they face uh, different, a different set of challenges that can, frankly, be as equally or <laughs> more difficult. Yeah. Um, but the the folks that seem to um, gravitate toward, toward our coalition at this point, many of them are are completely new to agriculture, and so are starting from square one. The coalition, uh, the, the I would say the the way that most people come into our coalition and and experience what we do at first is generally through our chapter network. We have. Uh, events on the ground organized by farmers a lot of farmer to farmer education farm tours potlucks that that type of thing uh-huh. um, and so those are happening in our in our 34 chapters around around the country and those chapters essentially form our grassroots network that feeds into our policy work uh, primarily in DC at this point so we take the needs that we're hearing on the ground from from young and beginning farmers and those, Flow up into a policy platform, um, and right now we're in Farm Bill season. So, right. one of the big services that we're offering for our farmers is essentially working with them in partnership to elevate their voices to get their needs heard by this Congress and hopefully the next Secretary of Agriculture and and the administration. So, right now, for instance, in the, in the budget process, we're Fighting very hard for programs that they have come to depend on, whether that's loans or conservation programs. Those are the types of needs that we're able to bring directly to USDA and and um, and Congress.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. One of the um, initial sort of wins that we made, and you know, through this theory of change, through you know, working with our grassroots network and and on up um, to USDA was early on in the coalition, we convinced the USDA to start a micro-lending program for all farmers. And previously, the USDA, the Farm Service Agency, was very good at giving large loans to farmers. And we said, not everybody needs $100,000 or more. Some people just need $10,000. And so right. they actually initiated a new loan program, a micro lending program, that's now served over 20,000 farmers all across the country. So it's mm-hmm. those kinds of things, looking at existing USDA programs and seeing how they can sort of be re- tailored or remade for the beginning farmer. Uh huh. And also defending some of those programs um, when they go through Congress, and some of them are you know proposed for cuts and, and that type of thing. And then lastly, we give um, support on the ground through business services. Right now, we're doing uh, credit education with farmers. Mm-hmm. We have a cooperative agreement with the Farm Service Agency, so we teach all about federal uh, lending programs. And we also are uh, teaching food safety classes with Mm -hmm. the National Farmers Union. Uh, Right now we're focused in the southeastern region and are giving classes to small-scale vegetable growers on how they can work up to or immediately comply um, with the Food Safety Modernization Act.
3: Uh Uh-huh, right, right. Um, so obviously regional differences are going to dictate what people are growing, but what are you seeing as trends in what, kinds of areas uh, young farmers are pursuing. Like, are you seeing a lot of uh, organic growers or are you seeing uh, people who focus on heirloom uh, varieties of vegetables and fruits or uh, heritage breeds of livestock? I mean, or are they mixed use farms, for example, or are they pursuing one type of farm? I mean, you said you yourself have 25 acres of, of vegetables and then you have some livestock. So you're a mixed use farm, I guess, right? um what 's the most prevalent trend that you see in that's these a great question yeah farmers?
4: we're we're in the process of doing a survey of uh-huh. and we 'll be releasing the results um in a couple of months here and that will give us a, a really clear picture of what our farmers are growing and where and uh, and at what scale but i 'll say generally speaking and and from what we know of our coalition, the majority of those farmers are uh using sustainable organic practices mm-hmm. not as many not as many of them are um Certified organic, as the number that use organic practices, but um, have not, you know, received certification yet, and that's for an, a number of number of reasons, including they might be on land that is not, um, cannot be certified organic yet because it's sort of in that transition phase. Right. So we have a majority of our farmers are doing certified organic or. Somewhere in between, um, and many of them are running diversified, highly diversified operations. So they're doing vegetables and and livestock together. Mm-hmm. I would say most of our farmers also are doing direct market. So they're selling direct to consumer. They're doing farmers markets. They're doing CSAs. Some of them are getting more into the wholesale business um, mm-hmm. as they achieve a little bit of scale, uh, and they're a little bit further on into into their careers. But most of them, most of the the young farmers in our network in particular, are using those direct market channels because it's the easiest way for them to scale from, you know, maybe that acre, quarter acre, Mm -hmm. you know, um, up because you have a, a CSA community network behind you and you're getting through CSA or farmer's market, you're getting the, the highest margin um,
3: on on your products. Right, that's what I was thinking. It's like you don't have a middleman, so you're not getting beat down on price for your livestock. Right. You're yeah. not mm-hmm. – yeah, makes a lot of sense. And and are, are farmer's markets, CSAs, growing commensurately to support uh, the number of new – how many new farmers are coming into your um, coalition every year, do you think?
4: That's, I'm not sure that I have a perfect answer for that, but I would say uh, – uh, at least hundreds of uh-huh. new farmers are, right. are are coming in Let's um see. our whole network now is over 100,000 uh young people around the country that that are you know part of our part of our um supporter network so we are seeing a, a, you know a growing number of young people um coming into agriculture in fact uh up to 2007, from uh, I think it's 1910 to 2007, the number of young people in agriculture has steadily decreased. Yes. And it was only in between 2007 and 2012 was there a small uptick in the number uh-huh. nationally in the number of owner-operators that are young, under 35, and... So it, it's a slightly measurable trend. I mean, there was only, I think, 1,200 during that period of time, 1,200 new operators. And unfortunately, at the same same time, between those two years, 2007 and 2012, nationally, we we lost 90 over 90,000 operators overall. But there was an increase, a slight increase in the number of young people in agriculture, which is which is a good thing. Oh yeah. And it's certainly not enough, but um, things things are hopefully slowly slowly turning around uh, right. in terms of how young people are perceiving perceiving the career of agriculture in terms of you know is CSA and farmers market are those growing along with the numbers of new farmers we'll say and i would say in Definitely, we have experienced a, a continuous trend of growth on our farm. We sell to New York City and the Hudson Valley region. We have continued to grow uh, our our market share uh, within CSA. We've continued to grow the numbers of of people, um, consumers, um, local folks, buying mm-hmm. our our products through CSA at those locations. I would say in some in some locations, uh, some towns particularly more rural places, there is definitely sort of um, a saturation point that some people are sort of feeling Uh where CSA is not up for everybody. And so, you know, that has pushed CSA to become a little bit more flexible for consumers. There's a little bit more choice. There's a little bit more, uh, you know, purchasing flexibility. You Mm -hmm. don't have to pay all... All up at once in the in the springtime, but you can pay in an installment program, so i think c s a has has changed a little bit, and consumers i think have um, stuck with it and I think overall there 's probably been growth uh, but I, but it 's not necessarily going to be the thing that 's going to scale farmers' markets um, I would say it's it 's kind of the same thing. <laughs> In some in some places, um, you know, farmers markets have continued to grow grow because there is a, a population to support those markets. In more rural markets, uh, it's a little bit more difficult when people have their own own like home gardens and there's farm stands and and whatnot. Right. Um, but you know, p- farmers are are finding a way. They're finding <laughs> their their niche. Some of the farmers in our network are also really looking to restaurants. Some are looking mm. to. Schools as an outlet um, for for sales. So they're definitely the the movement itself is expanding that market. They're trying to push the limits and and find ways to make the farmers market or CSA I think a, a better product really for uh, c- the consumer audience at large.
3: Uh huh. Very interesting. What about the diversity um, issue? How much diversity, ethnic diversity, do you see in your your cohort of young farmers of young people coming into mm-hmm. the profession?
4: Right well overall the 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 u s d a um has sub, uh, several different different ways of counting who's in agriculture. one of those ways is owner operators of farms and owner operators of farms is is prim- predominantly white mm-hmm. the white population and that is um somewhat reflected in our in our own coalition and we have been working uh, very hard over the over the last year to ensure that our coalition, our programs, the things that we're working on, are relevant um, to farmers of color. Um, yeah, because you course, have Karen Washington course, on I mean, your board, right? there's broad board, recognition right? that yeah. you know the farmers, the people who are actually picking the food in across the country, um, are predominantly farmers of color. Right. Uh, the, the farm worker population, sure. and I, I have um spoken many times about you know this this idea that we just need to figure out pathways you know for those very talented farm workers to find citizenship to f- to have right. a permanent home here in the United States but those workers also need to find a way to become farm owners because there's so much talent in that community um yeah. That can fill a lot of these vacancies that we're seeing at large um, within uh, the farm community. These these owner operators who are are retiring and and leaving uh, their farms.
3: Right, right. I, I mean, I'm thinking that probably the biggest barrier, aside from the you know immigration status, is whether or not you can secure a loan, and that seems to be definitely skewed toward a white population, uh, no matter what anybody says. Um, so I, I expect that that until that changes, that's going to be the biggest barrier to entry. Would you agree with that?
4: Well, I would say that the the Farm Service Agency has made a lot of strides in terms of. Trying to make sure that they are giving access uh, to their lending programs to all farmers, there uh-huh. have been well documented uh, problems in the past, lawsuits and whatnot, so mm-hmm. clearly there, there have been issues, but I feel like uh, at least on the federal side, they have tried um, quite hard to to reform some of those programs mm-hmm. under the last secretary of agriculture in, in particular.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, but one imagine. of the
4: problems that we see is, so for the um, immigrant population, undocumented population, you cannot get a loan from the Farm Service Agency unless you're a citizen of, right. of the United States. And I don't see that being something that, is going to likely change in my lifetime. It would be it would be pretty pretty tough to um, get that rule changed, but that doesn't mean we can't offer a path for citizenship for for a lot of these farm workers that are on the ground that have so much to offer. Yeah,
3: I would think so. I would think that that could you know potentially be like a deal that you make. You know mm-hmm. that you you agree to do this and and we'll agree to do that. But um, let's talk for a second about the because I want to get into more of the federal um, issues that you guys address. But the recent, what caught my eye and what led me to invite you to the show was the press release that your organization sent out about the um, budget proposal from the Trump administration that included a 21% cut to the USDA. And that would include a discretionary spending. It's not a cut to the farm bill yet, um, but it's just to their discretionary funding. What what do you think that will mean for your cohort in particular, and then maybe to farmers in general? Is that going to have more of an impact on the big ag guys, or is it going to have more of an impact on your people?
4: That's a good question. I'm so glad I've, you like my questions. I can my see questions. for how it would have impact uh, the farmers in our, in our network. They depend on, you know we've just been talking about credit credit programs yep. and the Farm Service Agency, they depend on the Farm Service Agency to Give them credit. Uh, oftentimes, the Farm Service Agency is the only bank that will lend uh, to young farmers because mm. they're going into farming, which is inherently risky. And by the way, they're new farmers, so they're they're even more in a position of risk because they're learning to farm uh, while they're while they're farming. So the. Farm Service Agency is absolutely critical to new and beginning farmers, and some of the cuts would potentially affect the Farm Service Agency's ability to loan uh, to farmers for either operating loans, the loans that farmers need on an, sometimes an annual basis to get their farms up and running in the beginning of the season, Uh mm-hmm. To farm ownership loans, which and down payment loans, which allow farmers to buy buy farms, as as you would expect. It also could affect uh, guarantees that the Farm Service Agency gives to other banks, that enables other banks uh, like Farm Credit to le- lend to farmers. So they share some of that risk, the Farm Service Agency, with with banks. So. It would have a very devastating effect for farmers uh-huh. seeking credit, which is most farmers, right? Uh, the other, the other programs that it could potentially hit uh, would be conservation programs, and down to like the individual uh, conservation specialist, you know, offering technical support to farmers at the natural resources conservation services offices all around the country. So those those are the offices they usually sit next to the farm service agency sometimes right next to extension agents and these are folks that help to deliver conservation programs on the ground to all farmers. Mm-hmm. And so there's been cuts that have been proposed to those offices so you would have fewer people on the ground helping farmers get gain access to those those programs and i'll tell you from our our own experience with the current funding levels. Our local guy, our NRCS guy, is just booked. I mean it's it's very hard to to get on his radar and, and get his mm-hmm. attention and I mean he's he's super helpful but he just has so many people that he has so many farms that he is supposed to be supporting and even mm-hmm. at existing levels. I mean they are they're really stretched thin to to help all of the farmers in, in their region. So the programs that come through NRCS are things like um, Um, The Environmental Quality Incentives Program, EQIP, that Mm -hmm. program offers a high-tunnel cost-sharing program that is likely one of the most popular programs that our farmers use right now because they're looking to use high tunnels for season extension oftentimes um, with issues of of climate change and increased disease pressure we now put all of our tomatoes for instance under a high tunnel like this so some of these programs they incentivize good practices on farms but they are also they have become a very important way for farms to become capitalized to to build up that infrastructure at the outset when when farms are just beginning Young and beginning farmers are really depending on these programs. And the the last thing through NRCS uh, that is a very big deal for our farmers is land conservation, Mm -hmm. um, funding for land trusts. Um, to buy development rights off of farms, to per- permanently protect land as farmland, to ensure that it doesn't become, I guess, a big box store or subdevelopment. That yeah. th- these prime soils are are protected as farms and that funding would be potentially cut as well the agricultural conservation easement program that's a that's a program that we have been really trying to get behind because of this issue of land transition right now it's estimated that two-thirds of all of the farmland in the United States is going to transition within the next decades, meaning that it's going to need a new owner because of right. the age, the average
3: age of farmers. Yes, I read 93 million acres. I, I'm actually going to be, I'm writing an article about land grabbing in the United States. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. And uh, 93 million acres will change hands within the next five years. So, you know, there you go. Yeah, right. there you go. There you go. So that is, I mean, it does make, uh, it makes a, a rather compelling case for these conservation programs. Right. Um. You okay. guys have worked a lot in the federal arena. We talked a little bit about the loan programs. One of the things that you mentioned on your website is that the Farm Services Administration should have specially trained agents. That's what you were talking about with the guy who's super booked and who may, in fact, experience uh, even more loss of, you know, bandwidth in terms of how much funding there is for that, but um, but those are the agents you were talking about who assist young and beginning farmers in county offices or specialists who serve multiple offices in a region. Like that's 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 right. So the far, that's the the Farm Service Agency. USDA has many.
4: Is the big is the big umbrella, and then there are yeah. the sub agencies underneath. And Farm Service Agency is one of those agencies. And then there's the Natural Resources Conservation Service and mm-hmm. RCS. That's mm-hmm. actually a different agency, and they both have offices with people in them. <laughs> right. The Farm Service Agency uh, that. Um, agency has actually deployed beginning farmer specialists now in in select regions around the country, and those beginning farmer specialists are something that we we have uh, advocated for because they are out in the field intended to help young and beginning farmers get ready to apply to the Farm Service Agency and help support agents on the ground with the applications of new and beginning farmers. One of the other challenges that we've faced is we have this influx of young people who want to run highly diversified farms, mm-hmm. direct market farms, that these are business models that haven't been seen in maybe a generation or two. Sure. At the Farm Service Agency, so they're not. It's a it's a different business model, and agents might not be as familiar with, uh, you know, the, what the cash flow might look like for a farmer doing pastured, you know, hens and right. vegetables. Then they might understand with someone who's who's. Has a commodity operation, for instance. It's sure. Just, it's a totally different, different thing. So, one of the requests that we've made um, of the FSA is that they're able to work more effectively with new business models that young people are are excited about um, pursuing. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, what wh- one of the points that you made, which I think is sort of universal for all of us, but you said as uh, 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 something that you're working towards in uh, when you lobby in Congress is help make health care affordable for farmers. And I, I, I'm assuming that you're not just talking about the individual farming family, but also health care for his workers. Um, is that part of what you're lobbying for? Or is it really just like farmers don't have health insurance? What are we talking about here?
4: Well, healthcare is a major concern for all make America, all Americans for all of us. and yeah. certainly for <laughs> for farmers because they're in one of the most dangerous careers right. where injury is is unfortunately not infrequent, mm-hmm. and so we have uh, been lobbying and raising our voices against this new house plan that that came out, the AHCA, of course. Oh, and so our farmers showed up um, and wrote letters and logged a lot of calls to rural congressional offices all around the country. And some of those farmers are owner operators and some of them are farm workers. We have many of the farmers in our network are not owning their own farm yet. They're, they would like to at some point, but they are are essentially farm workers, but absolutely i mean this the availability of of health care it it certainly is important for the owner operator and his or her family, but it's of course important for for workers as well to have that type of protection it it's yeah. labor is a, is a huge issue for farmers yeah. to find people who are willing and able to come and work at a farm and so if those folks can 't afford to <laughs> receive health care that, that makes it even that much harder for a farmer to to try to attract that talent uh, to the farm if if the workers feel like they they 're not going to be able you know to go to the to the hospital or the doctor if if they get um, sick or injured. if they
3: get injured. I, I was going to ask you like is it typical for example i mean i 've I've, um, talked a lot with Michael Hurwitz, you know the grow NYC guy who runs a lot of the farming programs at the at the green market in New York. And um, he made the case about how even just fighting for 15, you know, the $15 minimum wage, the, you know, trying to tell the story from that farmer's point of view of like, I'm not making enough money selling my stuff for me to even consider paying these people, even if I love them and have the same workers come back every year. And, you know, we're family, blah, blah, blah. But do I have the money to do that? I I had never heard that a uh, farmer's for, you know, a hypothetical farmer like that would even be able to offer health care to especially to seasonal workers. Is that something that you're hoping will you'll be able to uh, encourage in future? Or is it just something that, you know, it's again, it's like it's your year round operators who work with you, your your year round workers, um, not so much your migrant people who come in or your or your part time people who come in. How would that work?
4: Well, I think that, for instance, right now, the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, how mm-hmm. it's, it's playing out in New York State, for example, is there, there are some problems there for small business owners uh, mm-hmm. whose premiums have increased tremendously. But for the individual on the exchange looking for coverage, and particularly someone who is of a low-income, um, maybe a beginning farm worker, they're actually really good options for those farmers oh, yeah. to, to be able to purchase their own insurance through mm-hmm. the exchange. And so that's what we've seen, and that's why this program has been become so popular among our farmers, is because they have actually been able to access uh, affordable health care. Right. However, you know, in New York State, it's working well because you have the Medicaid expansion, and the, and the state has Been very proactive and and involved, but we have farmers, for instance, in Georgia that where there is not the Medicaid expansion, Mm -hmm. and they don't have health care coverage at all at this point. They 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 just don't have an affordable option available to them on the exchange. So they're paying literally out of pocket for hospital hospital visits. So you know, there I would say that the the best case scenario is something like the affordable care act where individual farmers farm workers are not tied into the farm right to receive their health care but they're able to have a, a essentially a public option where they can uh, sign up for their own their own health care independently Mm-hmm. And receive it at an at an affordable rate. Right, right. It just it just doesn't make sense for a, an individual farm, in in my estimation, to get. Yeah. We have done this in the past, um, but it, it doesn't really make sense necessarily for a farm to to offer care, I would say if the better alter. I mean, of course the farm workers, and the farmer need health insurance. So if that's how it has to happen, that's fine. But a better option is for those farmers to be able to buy it from an exchange or something similar where they can get it on their own, but it's it's still affordable.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it would be an interesting uh, study to see if the USDA could somehow uh, make some sort of a uh, federal program available for farmers and farm workers or something like that. I don't, of course, anticipate anything like that ever happening um, in this country since... <laughs> We can't even get health insurance for our basic population. But, you know, it would be an interesting exercise to see if that could be somehow written into the farm bill at some point. Because, I mean, ultimately, you know, because we don't have a lot more time here, Lindsay, and I I just want to sort of make the case for your organization and what you guys are doing is that – our, the average age of the farmer in the United States has gone down a little bit. It was, um, you know, 10 years ago, I think it was more like 65. Now it's more like 55. But the reality is is that without more young people going into the profession, uh, we will face some very serious food insecurity in the future. Um, and I, maybe you'd like to address that, actually. Like, what what do you think would be the best way to encourage more people to come into the farming community? How could the government help uh, help uh People, I mean, again, not with this impossible administration, but, like, what would you like to see, for example, in the farm bill that might help younger farmers, you know, come along besides cutting the 21% that they're proposing right now? Like, what would be your ideal program?
4: That, that's a great question. I, I think the best we can do is to ensure that the young people who have already expressed interest and are already trying to farm out in the field right right now is that we help them become career farmers that we help them get over the many obstacles that they're facing right now and ensure that they become you know they're they're running economically viable businesses and that they can stay in the career Mm -hmm. and that they can have families and they can meet their life goals and that farming um, is actually a viable career. And I think if we can do that, uh, if we can provide that, make that career path a real one, um, a reasonable one, that more young people will pursue it because they'll see their peers and other young people making a good good life for themselves in, in farming. Yeah. So in the next Farm Bill, we are looking for programs that will continue to support this next generation of farmers. And in particular, we are looking for, for programs that are going to deal with this issue of land access and transitioning land from this existing generation of family farmers uh, to the next generation of family farmers to make sure that it's conserved and that it's available for for young people coming into agriculture.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, speaking about sort of the, the switch from generation to a new generation, how much, um, how much are older farmers, or how are you able to work with older farmers as mentors for younger farmers? I'm wondering how much uh, that comes into play in your organization, or is that just, um, you know, just not happening?
4: Well, we do have, we have chapters on the ground, and they have events and farm tours and whatnot, and some of those farm tours are hosted by more established, experienced farmers Mm -hmm. as a means of teaching the next generation of, of farmers about their successful operations. And we have actually farmers who are more experienced who are looking for the next generation maybe their kids don't want to farm who come to our mixers as well and say Mm -hmm. i'm looking for a farmer i have land that type of thing and we also encourage our farmers on the ground in as as a strategy for success is to become um friends and and um you know partners with with, the folks who are already in their communities, the experienced farmers that have been there for generations and to learn from them, um, to be their, their apprentices, we have farmers in our community. We are certified organic. We have conventional farmers, uh, farmers doing all types of different operations in our local community, and we have learned so much from them because most of what we're doing is is the same, right? It's, it's yeah. the same. It's the same thing of of selling farm products at farmers markets and, and dealing with zoning and and finding land and all these things. There's a lot of camaraderie there, so part of being a farmer is being part of a community and learning from from the farm families that have, have been in town and in place for generations.
3: Right. right well, we should wrap it up. Uh, tell people how they can learn more about National Young Farmers Coalition um, and, you know, read. you have a blog, you have all kinds of legislation that you'd like to, to see passed. Um, tell people how they can learn more about you.
4: Sure. Well, we have a A lot of information at youngfarmers.org, our website. And at youngfarmers.org, we have some great films about what young farmers are doing in the field right now. We're running a series called Heart and Grain about young grain farmers in the Midwest are doing some pretty amazing, amazing things out there. And we also have a take action on our website in support of HR 1060, which is called the Young Farmer Success Act, which would actually help young farmers overcome another obstacle, which is paying back student indebtedness and Uh, trying to operate a farm at the same time. So uh, there's there's lots of room to get involved at youngfarmers.org if you're a farmer or not.
3: That's right. Because remember, right. folks, no farms, no food. <laughs> right, Lindsay? That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's, like, it's not all going to be coming, you know, I mean, grocery stores will soon run out of product, or we'll be spending an awful lot more on our food if we have to import everything we eat. So... I guess in the fruits and vegetables, I don't think we have to worry about any shortage of meat anytime soon, because we certainly seem to have a lock on that supply. Um, Lindsay, uh, am I saying this right, Lindsay Lusher Shoot. That's right. That's yep. correct. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was Thanks really, me. really an interesting program. I hope you'll come back again and tell me more about what your uh, organization is doing and any successes that you have. And um, when, next time I go down to D.C. and start roaming around the halls of Congress, which I want to do, I'll be sure to make sure that they're paying attention to the National Young Farmers Coalition. Fantastic. <laughs> I love telling Thanks those guys so much, off. <laughs> thank you, Lindsay. And thank right. you to my um, sponsor today, Southern Farm and Garden, and of course to my... My engineer, as always, uh, Dave. Um, And thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Take care.
0: Thanks
2: for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.